Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like plasters, angst and woodworm. Of those three, Sam, I want to do every single one, especially angst. <laughs> I think angst would be utterly, utterly brilliant. Or we could do rocks, socks and pox, locks, spocks and shocks. I think the history of shocks would be a really good one. I'm thinking already yeah. about what we could do for Halloween. And I think we should do Ooh. two. I think we should do corpses because I've been reading all sorts on corpses lately, and shocks. Okay. I, I think we should pop those in the unexpected notebook uh, yeah. and and squirrel them away for Halloween. Have we done... We should do fear. Uh, I think we may have done fear. I Ooh. think we may have done fear. I think we have well, done fear. I know. Uh, are we... Who'd have thought? <laughs> we definitely we've done some uh, some themes before. James, yes, Halloween's going to be brilliant. Um, we can definitely do teeth. It makes me think of vampires and monsters with bad teeth. I think that would be quite a fun thing to do. Oh, I think that would be good. I think we've done that as well. I think we've also done the history of shadows. <laughs> <laughs> we're on. We do the history we're on, of repetition. We're on. Oh, oh, brilliant! Yes, we could just play our entire back catalogue, which I think now is over three hundred episodes people somebody on twitter the other day described us as a podcasting machine and i think oh, well, that's, that's probably nice. quite right isn't it we just enjoy it so much there's yes. so many things entertaining things um, that we can do anyway let me carry on with this actual podcast and tell you who is doing all of this uh, but first we should be following the links <laughs> in our minds as we come across them not digressing at all but explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example sam who knew that the history of rain is in fact all about superstitions, rainmaking, rain dances and prayers for rain. It's about Jonathan Swift and the etymology of its raining cats and dogs. It's about Hollywood rain scenes in Singing in the Rain. The 16th century Spanish explorer Francisco de Orellana. It's about Alexander von Humboldt and the Americas. It's also... It's also all about World War One and the trenches and much, much more. Yes, of course it is. It's also all about COP26. Um, 
who knew also that the history of volcanoes <laughs> is in fact all about world-changing human history-shaping events, such as the eruption of the Okmok volcano in 43 BC, which apparently not only led to the fall of the Roman Republic, but also to the rise of the Roman Empire. It's about Edvard Munch's very famous painting, The Scream. It's about literary depictions via Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Victorian disaster narratives. It's also about the first global media event in history, which was the eruption of Krakatoa in 1883. It's also about archaeological technological developments of recovering decayed human bodies, as well as construct reconstructing the history of food and drink in ancient Pompeii. Goodness me, that was a mouthful. <laughs> Who knew all of that, Sam Willis? It was a mouthful. Well, it was a very detailed episode. Very much enjoyed it. Let me introduce my fellow presenter before we get on to what we're talking about today. Let me just say of my fellow presenter that if history were a snooker table and historical knowledge a set of snooker balls, this man would use his unique white ball of historical method and his queue of incisive questions to track down and pocket those red balls of wisdom from the past, using them as the engine room of his break with which to clear up with a 147, the highest possible historical snooker score, the professional historical equivalent of receiving an award from histories of the unexpected. He is the Ronnie O'Sullivan of the history world... He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> Hello, Sam. I'm quite snooker loopy uh, over that <laughs> introduction. That was extraordinary. You may well, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a red-related historian, he'd be the big bad wolf to little red riding to the little red riding hood of history with such big eyes all the better to see the documentary gems amidst the historical archive such big ears all the better to eavesdrop on the voices of the past and such big teeth all the better to devour with relish facts and figures and stories of centuries gone by but he's certainly not going to be the victim of any huntsman's act not he because you've guessed it, he's the famous historical adventurer oh. himself, Dr Sam Willis. Well done. We've nearly done about 10 minutes already. I know. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Uh, we just love chatting so much anyway. That's that's what's going on here. We're doing the history of red. You we, might have thought it was snooker, but it's not. It's the history of red. And nor is it the history of wolves. It, it, it's, no. <laughs> it's the history of red. And we're doing this especially, would you believe, because it is Valentine's Day. St. Valentine's Day on the 14th of February. We've done in the mm. past, we've done topics on love, on marriage, on all sorts of things. But now we're going to be doing the history of the colour red. And we're doing this because I read... Partly because I read a brilliant book by James Fox called A Cultural History of Colour, or The World According to Colour, A Cultural History. I bought it for my wife at Christmas, and she has been raving about it ever since. So I read it this week, and it is absolutely extraordinary, Sam. Uh, so I'm going to be talking hmm. a lot about that. It, it's really good. Uh, I'm really quite jealous and it's exactly the kind of book we should have written. Uh, and in fact, oh. that we have written. It's really, really good. But I wanted to start with um, sure. a little passage from it, uh, from an essay 
uh, called uh, Colour Consciousness, which was published in 1935 by a woman called Natalie Kalmus, who's connected to early cinema. And she was in control of Technicolor's Colour Advisory Service. Uh, So she's connected to all those people who are putting colour into cinematography, so in those, those early movies. And it's absolutely fascinating from that. But what I wanted to talk about here, what I wanted to introduce us with, is her description of red. And she she talks about all sorts of major colour hues, but grants red a singular power. And I quote, Red recalls to mind a feeling of danger, a warning. It also suggests blood, life and love, It is materialistic, stimulating. It suffuses the face of anger. It led the Roman soldiers into battle. Different shades of red can suggest various phases of life, such as love, which of course is what we're going to be talking about a little bit, or certainly I am. Happiness, physical strength, wine, passion, power, excitement, anger, turmoil, tragedy, cruelty, revenge, war, sin and shame. These are all different, yet in certain respects they are the same. Red may be the colour of the revolutionist's flag, and the streets may run red with the blood of rioters, yet red may be used in a church ritual for Pentecost as a symbol of sacrifice, whether blood is spilled upon the battlefield in an approved cause, or whether it drips from the assassin's dagger, blood still runs red. Love gently warms the blood. The delicacy or the strength of a shade of red will suggest the type of love by introducing the colours of licentiousness, deceit, selfish ambition or passion. It will be possible to classify the type of love portrayed with considerable accuracy. So there we are. There's my there's my um, there's my uh, little handle uh, for getting us into love and red and love brilliant beautifully written i thought about red and hate oh sam willis it's valentine's day you can't do that i know well i have done it go on then i'm afraid go on that's that's what we're doing um well hate but more to do with kind of identity and uh race primarily actually um i came across my my new favorite article called how indians got to be red Mm. it's published in the american historical review in 1997 and it is a truly fantastic article absolutely fascinating about how um Colour became associated with red. Sorry, colour became associated with race, um, particularly in relation to uh, Native Americans. Fascinating stuff. How the race essentially outpaces older categories of um, justifying expropriating land and the labour of others. Because pr- primarily it would have been uh, uh, religious based. You might have Christians, you might have pagans, and then you have this new categorising uh, technique. Um, And it sort of fulfills Europe's ideological needs to, uh, you know, reassure them and to convince them that human difference was biologically ordained. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that it's so easy to consider what Europeans think about race. So much has been written about racism and and views on race from that perspective. But if you think about it from the other way around, about what non-Europeans were thinking about race, you do get a a really interesting perspective on it um, because you're not just focusing on how whites constructed images of others. You almost you see the other side of the coin. 
and one way of doing this is to look at uh, look at American Indians, um, and just even th considering it this way, that um, it, it gives them a more active role in the construction of knowledge. Otherwise, everything is seen from the white perspective, and uh, Native Americans, for example, will end up having a very passive role. Um, and just be, being as if they have been labelled. So historians need to be aware of that and to think about it in different perspectives. There has been some um, early work by historians into this. Um, and it was noted uh, actually quite a long time ago that uh, the Swedish naturalist Carolus Linnaeus um, mentioned the term red as a racial category in 1740 in his book Systema Naturae. How he came to that, no one is exactly sure. He may have heard of red painted Indians. A lot of this does come, come down to face paint. Um, but at the same time, the Greek physician Galen had a, a medical philosophy of the four humours. And that very, is very likely to have inspired Carolus Linnaeus in this. Um, because it's not just his depiction of Native Americans as red. He also talks about red people being choleric, white people being sanguine, yellow people being melancholic, and black people being phlegmatic. Now, another interesting thing about this is that we also know that, that he, even though this was an early version of it, he was not the first one at all to have identified um, uh, race with colour and particularly with with the colour red. So this is more than a decade before this um, Systema Naturae was published. There is historical evidence of American Indians, particularly in the southeast, calling themselves red. How and why they came to do that is not entirely clear either. But the point is here, we've got clear evidence of the Americans labelling themselves as red. They've got their own colour symbolism. They've got a couple of fantastic examples here. So in 1725, um, this is um, kind of around Louisiana, you're, you've got the French speaking to a group of Indians in a council at Mobile. And they asked them whether they would like to become Christian. And they recorded a response from a chief. Long ago, there were three men in a cave, one white, one red and one black. The white man went out first, and he took the good road that led him into a fine hunting ground. The red man, who is the Indian, for they call themselves in their language red men, went out of the cave second. He went astray from the good road and took another which led him into a country where the hunting was less abundant. The black man, who is the Negro, having been the third to go out, got entirely lost in a very bad country in which he did not find anything on which to live. Since that time, the red man and the black man have been looking for the white man to restore them to the good road. So there you are, James, a wonderful example of how Native Americans were actually identifying themselves as red in the first quarter of the 18th century. Um, and it's, it's proof of the need to consider um, the whole question of colour and race from everyone's perspective, not just white Europeans. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Excellent, Sam. Excellent. As always, now I'm going to get us back on track and I'm going to connect red to love, fire, the history of emotions. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to um, recommend that you all go out and buy a copy of this excellent book, The World According to Colour. A Cultural History by James Fox, published by Alan Lane. Oh, I must admit, I must say, we have not been asked to do a product placement here at <laughs> all. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this book, and when I find something that I get really excited about, I like to crow about it. And I, in particular, I was reading the chapter on red and a section on it called Like a Red Rose. And the argument that it's making is really an argument about red and the emotions. And I'm going to sort of start there and lead us into some quite famous uh, love poetry for that touches on red uh, to connect us to uh, the current day, to Valentine's Day. And this this section starts looking at... And the play Macbeth, so Shakespeare's famous play, and in particular there, the playing between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth about the washing out of the, the blood, so the red blood that Macbeth has sort of on his hands, having having murdered the king of Fife. And there's all sorts of discussion about this. Lady Macbeth can't sleep and is is sleepwalking and, and can't wash the blood off her off her hands. Um what this what this is is about it's about the guilt so it's not about simply getting off the stained murderer's blood but it's actually being unable to wash her soul clean there's a sort of feeling of total guilt then the chapter goes into discussions of red and transgression 
so people being sort of it being connected to crimes and people being caught red-handed are often thought to have been committing a crime and then there are various sort of uses of red as a metaphor for different kinds of psychological states which can be connected to anger or embarrassment and and indeed connected to lust and love and and those kinds of colors that are associated with hot emotions of fiery tempers burning resentments smoldering desires the idea that also that people are being told to cool down so not being so fiery and i suppose it's also connected to things like embarrassment or arousal and you imagine the blood rushing up into people's faces or neck as sort of small capillaries sort of fill with oxygenated blood and those areas become redder and warmer and a really interesting uh, discussion is also around Orhan Pamuk's novel My Name is Red which was published in 1998 which is really about the almost personification of red and red is a character in this book that um, that has sort of various qualities and I just want to read you a little bit um, from this if we touched it with the tip of a finger, it would feel like something between iron and copper. If we took it in our palm, it would burn. This is referring to the colour red. If we tasted it, it would be full-bodied like salted meat. Or perhaps, and I'm inserting here, or, or a, a deep red wine like Barolo. Um, back, to, back to Pamuk. Um, if we took it between our lips, it would fill our mouths. If we smelled it, it'd have the scent of a horse. If it were a flower, it would smell like a daisy, not a red rose. Um, there's also a, a, a connection with Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Red Shoes, from 1845, which is a really sort of terrifying book because it's about a young girl called Karen who gets a pair of red leather shoes and she is besotted by them, puts them on, and her behaviour changes completely. She, previously, she was a, a good girl, and now she becomes obsessed with these. Her f stepmother um, is, one evening, lies sort of on her deathbed, and this girl, instead of tending to her, goes out of the house and attends a dance in town, and she starts to dance and then discovers that she simply can't stop, that these shoes are quite simply glued to her feet and will not let her go. And they just keep her dancing and dancing and dancing and dancing. And she dances everywhere down the staircase and around the town, through the forest. And she eventually goes to an executioner's house and she's covered in blood because she's been forced to go through all this undergrowth through briars and brambles she's bleeding everywhere and she gets at the executioner's house and she asks him to chop off her feet and of course he does uh, this is the grisly end of the story he does he chops her feet off and the red shoes sort of dance off and so I think what we've got here is a sense of is a connection between red and deep deep emotion whether it be love whether it be excitement whether it be um whether it be love or lust and there is research that has basically connected red to romance to sexual arousal um you know a connection to men being attracted to red clothes or red lipstick 
um, and there being sort of associations with between red and blood and love and life. Um, and this leads us in a sort of roundabout way to some of the representations or uses of red in some of the most famous love poetry that we have in the English or British canon. I wouldn't say Robert Burns is, is English because he's not. He's Scottish and I would be offending, uh, I would be offending uh, quite a lot of people by saying that. But this is one of my, my favourite poems, A Red, Red Rose by Robert Burns. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love is like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. So fair art thou, my bonny lass, so deep in love am I. And I will love thee still, my dear, till other seas gone dry. Till other seas gone dry, my dear, and the rocks melt with the sun. I will love thee still, my dear, while the sands of life shall run. And fare thee well, my only love, and fare thee well a while, and I will come again, my love, though it were ten thousand mile. So there we are, Sam. The colour red, poetry, love, and St Valentine's Day. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. What's your favourite colour? My favourite colour? It depends. I quite like red. Um, but I think if you looked at my wardrobe, it would probably be black or blue or, uh, controversially, pink. I have a lot hmm. of pink in my wardrobe. Partial well, to a pink shirt. It's actually a more complicated question than you think, isn't it? So what's your favourite colour? Just like randomly. What's your favourite colour? Clothing. Different question, I think. Completely different question. So I could have a favourite colour, but it's not necessarily the colour of clothes I would wear. Is that is that fair? I think that's fair. Red wine. I prefer red wine to white wine. Hmm. Mm. So in terms of red, do you prefer a deep red or a light red? Mm, gosh, I don't. I ooh, depends. Depends again. Uh, probably a bright mm. red, but not a if clothing a bright red. Not not really a burgundy, but wine. Uh, the deeper, the richer, the better. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, final question, Jane. Oh yes, um, it's like an exam, do Sam. <laughs> we are doing I'm all well. nervous. Do you... Will I get the answer right? <laughs> do you think? Um, uh... Always, I always think very deeply. Do you think people people's favourite colours change over time? Yes, of course they do, Sam Willis. They must do. They must um, do. Anyway, I I ask all of this because I came across a wonderful article from 1941. Ooh, um, it's a long time ago. Yeah, long time ago, um, called a critical, critical and experimental study of colour preferences in the American Journal of Psychology. I really mm. like the fact that everyone else is fighting the Nazis or <laughs> the Japanese and uh, trying to uh, try win the war and stop stop Jews being murdered. And there's some someone sitting around at home writing about colour preferences. Anyway, um, I've always been interested in actually the con continuing academia in the First and Second World War, James. I know. Um, Interesting stuff. This so it's all about uh, it's it's all about how people began to um, identify different colour choices in people, and the fact that that colour the study of colour preferences has a history. It's a simple point to make, but this one is from 1941, and it allows us to to bring that idea further forward. Um, actually, in this article, they mention that 1894 is generally regarded as the first definite empirical approach to the study 
of colour preferences. And we've just hinted on a few things there about whether it's your cloak, whether the, the colour is the same randomly or, or generally, or whether it's applied to your clothing or it changes with age. But at this period, the, the, the interest was was on three specific thing, things. One was a, a general order of colour preferences, so with no kind of um, contributing factors. What is your favourite colour? Is it A, B, C, D or E? Can you please put these in an order? Um, there was a relative popularity of verse saturated versus unsaturated colours, which is an entirely different subject so I haven't got time to get into today. Um, but the third one I was very interested in is the differences in the preferences for colours between the sexes. Um, so uh, 1941, this is this is what they get up to. They do an experiment and uh, they discover that in the rankings of 15 men and the 15 women who are asked, they agree completely that in the placings of blue, red, green and violet um, in, in the rankings of what their favourites are. But they reverse the position of the yellow and the orange. So yellow being very much preferred by men and women preferring um, orange. So if you actually look at these are the rankings here. So at the bottom, the favourite colour is, the, the least favourite colour is blue. And then it goes to red. And then it goes to green. And then it goes to violet. And then, then this is where it changes. So, uh, so the next one up for women is yellow. And then their favourite is orange. And for men, it's the other way around. So the next one up from violet is orange. And then their favourite is yellow. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating. And you can then see how this history of studying colour preference um, can be traced up to the, to, to the modern day. So I found a really interesting one from 2003 looking at the colour preferences of children. So this is not just about whether your favourite uh, colour changes over time. It's, it's actually just looking specifically at a group of kids to see if they give different answers to a group of adults. They asked children aged between 4 and 11 they were given a set of 10 different colours to choose from. And um, quite simple, they keep pointing until all of the colours were chosen. And they found that girls significantly preferred pink and purple and red more than the boys. But the boys um, had showed a much greater preference um, than girls for blues, blacks, browns, greens and whites. Now, you could also take this idea of colour preference, but also apply it to um, to to culture, to geography to where you've been brought up. There's a fascinating study from 2007. This looks at both men and women from China compared with England. Uh, and that was interesting because they found that women uh, from China preferred red and disliked green and yellow. Now, this will obviously make you think that um, your colour preferences has... Uh, is 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 affected by the culture, by the, the place you're brought up and by your own history. And then you work, you can look into that um, specifically to look at the way that uh, colours symbolise different things in different locations. So red, for example, that's good luck in China. And that probably explains why uh, females in that uh, experiment from 2007 preferred red. But it's, it's good luck. It symbolises good luck in China, Denmark and Argentina. But it means bad luck in Germany, Nigeria and Chad. Uh, white is a colour of happiness and purity in the USA, Australia and New Zealand, but it symbolises death in East Asia. Green represents envy in the USA and Belgium, while in Malaysia it represents danger or disease. Um, so proof here that there is a great deal of, 
of variation in the symbolism of colour um, between cultures and that every single one of those choices, red of course included, will have its own fascinating history. So James, you know, the more you look into it, the more a complicated box of tricks it really is. It certainly is a complicated box of tricks. And do you remember last week me telling you that I had ordered Steve Roud's Penguin Guide to the Superstitions of Britain and Ireland. Do you remember that? Mm, yes. Well, yeah, yeah. luck would have it, but it chanced through my... Well, it didn't chance through my letterbox, but it dropped through my letterbox this week, and I have it. You can hear it here. And uh, leafing through this very wise tome, I came across references to red. In particular, red hair. And there's been, for a long time, a long tradition of red-haired people in Britain being distrusted. So all uh, sorts I've of, come across this as well. All, I thought it was brilliant. All sorts of superstitions for them. And, you know, that they're seen as devious, cruel, unlucky. And I've got a couple of little examples here. Um, this is from Notes and Queries in 1853. It seems to be generally supposed by those who harbour the doctrine that red-haired people are dissemblers, deceitful, and in fact not to be trusted like others whose hair is of a different colour. And I may add that I myself know persons who, on that account alone, never admit them into their service, any whose hair is thus objectionable. And there's another one from uh, an 1894 folklore book from County Leitrim. Um, there is a great objection to meeting a woman when going out to a fair or market, but especially is it unlucky to meet a red-haired one. Indeed, so much so that many people would turn back were this to happen to them, as luck would certainly be <laughs> against them. Just go home. Isn't that a Shropshire Notes and Queries, oh God, 1875? Oh it's not dear. lucky for a woman or a red-haired man to come into your house first on a New Year's Day. There'll be a death in it afore the year's out. And this is from a, a female servant, aged 40. What do you think of that, hey? Wow. You came across really this as I... well, did you? Yeah, but in particular, um, relation to Judas. Oh, so it's a very well-known, tra very well-known tradition that Judas Iscariot has red hair. But the, the act has plenty of plenty of, of, of evidence for it. Um, particularly so if you um, look at in coloured coloured glass, so medieval stained glass. A particularly wonderful example in the Cathedral of Chartres. Mm. Um, Leonardo's Last Supper. Judas's hair is uh, hair and beard are a dull red, and there are countless. Um, different evidences of this hmm. um, and there's also all sorts of, of proof of it existing in sayings um, as you've mentioned there uh, and particularly in France um, it was believed for years that red hair actually prevented a man from joining the priesthood because Judas had red hair and then from Wright's English Dialect Dictionary of 1898 that is a seriously interesting book um, it gives Judas born as a meaning being born with red hair. Um, so one, for example, is from the 19th century Tennyson. Um, uh, this is from a Tennyson play, Queen Mary. Um, the first citizen says, I thought this Philip had been one of those black devils of Spain, but he hath a yellow beard. Second citizen, not red like Iscariots. First citizen, like a carrots, as thou sayest. 
So there we are. And another, a Cornish poet here writes of the sickly hue of vile Iscariot's hair. So not just not just a beautiful auburn, James, or, or you know, ble- no, blessed no. with some ginger hair, but it has the sickly hue. No one's entirely sure where it's come from, um, but there's little doubt that it's, it is part of a tradition um, which, is, which is much older than Judas Iscariot, I think. Um, and that is that red-haired men are treacherous and dangerous. Um, and what they've done is they've applied this to Iscariot, uh, being the arch-traitor of the Bible, the man who brings down Jesus. That happened probably at some time in the early Middle Ages, when when everyone was... The, the popular imagination was kind of struggling with making up biographies and biographical details for saints and martyrs. So that's a really interesting period of the medieval period, when you, when you suddenly have people writing biographies of people... And they want to put in the detail that makes it particularly human, makes it particularly be- believable. Uh, colour of hair being a very important part of that and how you conceive and perceive of people. And um, it's at this stage, they reckon, that Judas was cursed with the sickly hue of red hair. <laughs> Which, for all of you listening who have red hair, uh, I'm very sorry about this. I, I don't think that you are treacherous and vile at all. I think you're wonderful and I love your hair. Oh, red thread is another thing. So red red hair is one thing that it, you know, that it's associated with, you know, distrustful people. But red thread was is actually connected to cures and to good luck. So it's protective. And I've got a couple of little quotes here. Uh, one from uh, a fo- folklore in 1932 in Yorkshire. Sometimes a little red silk bag containing two hazel twigs is hung from the neck by a red silk thread as a protection against illness and harm in general. The red silk is also very commonly seen around the necks of children as a preventative of the common cold, and it is never removed, even in the swimming bath. This is accounted for by the fact that it is also supposed to preserve its owner from death by drowning. Yeah, get that. And here are a couple, couple more mm. for you. Um, this is from this is from uh, te, te, uh, uh, circa ten fifty from the uh, cotton manuscripts, um, uh, and it's uh, so we're going back to the sort of Saxon period here. For a lunatic, take this wart or clove wart and wreathe it in a red thread about the man's neck when the moon is on the wane in the month which is called April. In the early part of October, soon he will be healed. And what about this one from 1851, Notes and Queries in Scotland? It is common practice with the housewives in Buchan to tie a piece of red worsted around their cow's tail previous to turning them out to grass for the first time in spring. It secures their cattle, they say, from an evil eye and from being elf-shot by fairies. There's another one from Wales in 1930. Many charms are still remembered, often with a kind of half-belief against the evil eye, red thread tied to a cradle, or knots of red ribbon on a baby's clothes. So there we are, Sam. Red is a colour of luck. Hmm, wonderful stuff. Um, 
Thank you all so much for listening to our History of Red. I found some fascinating things in there, Jameson. As always with Histories of the Unexpected, would like to carry on and do some more research into it. I think particularly into the details of, the biographical details of the saints and martyrs. That's what I've discovered yes, interests I, I me. Did, I, I was imagining you might talk about uh, red and Chinese New Year celebrations because red is a lucky colour. Uh, for the Chinese, yeah. from lanterns, envelopes, yeah. all sorts of things. Uh, good fortune and joy during Lunar New Year celebrations. I think that was in the Waitrose magazine. I came across that. <laughs> I know, of all, of all things, as they, yeah. as they are trying to sell you ingredients to make uh, delicious Chinese food, uh, they spruce it up with a little bit of, a little bit of history and red. Wonderful stuff. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're interested in the history of the sea and maritime and naval history, um, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, on <laughs> Twitter. Twitter, it's at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected uh, Pod. And we are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and check us out there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you would like to be a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com and find our page and support us uh, to change the way in which people think about the past. Anything that you give to help support what we're doing uh, would be very much appreciated and really helpful. But in the meantime, Absolutely. happy Valentine's Day to all of you, everyone <laughs> who's out there. Whether you have a Valentine or not, we love you. Especially those with red hair. We really do love you. Thank you all very much. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.